So the subject I wanted to ask your opinion about, there's the whole debate of is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu effective in the street? Right. Which is for me, I have my conclusions, yeah. and I think it's, it's almost a ridiculous talk subject, but it keeps coming up. Yeah. My experience is mostly it's traditional martial artists who yeah. are, sure. I think, making excuses. Right. But, but I think you, for sure, you as a professional, your insights would be very valuable in the right. subject. So. Okay. Well, this is a subject that I've been talking about for we, I, I should say we, me and the other, myself and the other uh, old, older school founding coaches of SBG, we've been talking about the subject for 25 years. So I have a lot of experience in this. It's the exact same thing we heard from the JKD community and Filipino martial arts. Every um, fantasy-based martial art has the same arguments. Um, and so there's, there's about three ways we can approach it. I can give you a very short answer that would sum it up in less than a paragraph right. because it, it is a, um, a silly argument. Mm -hmm. I can give you a longer answer where we can talk directly about just how important Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is for self-defense right. because mm -hmm. it, is, it is a critical part of any kind of physical self-defense curriculum. Mm -hmm. Or I can give you the longest answer, um, which you'd probably have to break up into parts, where I would want to begin having that conversation about truth and how we arrive at it because ultimately the answer to the question of whether or not jiu-jitsu brazilian jiu-jitsu is functional for self-defense is a question of epistemology mm -hmm. because um, interestingly enough arguments for any form of superstition are all the same mm -hmm. they use basically three types of arguments or excuses mm -hmm. depending on how you look at it mm -hmm. three pseudo forms of evidence mm -hmm. um, and they follow the same trajectory. You can predict where the person's going to go through the argument. Um, and this is true of religion. It's true of um, fake medical hope, you know, mm -hmm. quackery. And it's true of traditional martial arts. So actually, before taking the next step, could you define, because I, th I think probably some people, like, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the Kruger and Dinner Epistemology? Right, but uh, actually fantasy, as simple as it sounds, fantasy-based martial arts, because I, I have a feeling most practitioners, they think it's about another martial art without having that um, definition of what it is. Maybe it's sometimes hard to track for the practitioner how to sure. define that. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of the point, is trying to get people to be able to realize that for themselves, because this mm. was such a common question, and I think it was a lot more, it was discussed more it's, I'm sure it's discussed a lot in the Aikido community and other traditional martial arts community, but in the martial arts world as a whole, I think that this conversation was discussed more often prior to the UFC. Mm -hmm. And prior to Horian bringing the UFC, the first UFC, even myself, who had been training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and, uh, and Muay Thai, and I had been boxing, um, even I thought when the first UFC was going to be aired and I and we got the posters at the gym and we hung them up and everything even I thought man somebody's gonna get seriously hurt because some of these kicks to the knee and this and mm -hmm. that and there's all this um, superstition that was still attached to martial arts and so back then the conversation was was a lot more uh, ubiquitous I think and people would generally want to know what style works and what doesn't and I realized very quickly back then that that's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is why certain styles work and why other styles don't. Because once you have that figured out, then you can answer that question for yourself instead of going and cherry picking which arts you think are gonna be functional based on technique. Because it's not about technique. 
And, um, and that's why I started using the term aliveness because aliveness is a catch-all term for something that works. And for something to work, it has to have timing, energy, and motion. Mm. And if you look at the martial arts that have timing, energy, motion, and more importantly, train consistently with mm. timing, energy, motion, what arts would you put on that list yourself? Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for sure. Muay Thai, kickboxing, boxing, wrestling. Mm -hmm. mm, anything related to wrestling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just, I think those, those probably are the top ones. Mm -hmm. Mm. Correct. Yeah. Sabat, any, you know, mm. French kickboxing, right. any yeah. kind of form of kickboxing, any kind of form of wrestling, mm -hmm. um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, of course. Mm. Um, what arts are you going to see practiced by the majority of practitioners in the UFC? Same list. Same list, right? right. And then you look at the arts that um, aren't, we're not going to see in there, or when we mm. did see in there, when the experiment was still being run, Mm. Um, we saw what happened and you're looking at Kung Fu and traditional mm -hmm. Kung Fu and even Wing Chun and Aikido mm -hmm. and traditional mm -hmm. Japanese Jiu Jitsu and there are forms of karate that can be functional even back in the you know before the UFC they had you know for example um, uh, I forgot the name of that particular karate style but they kick the legs and hit the body uh, so Kyokushin? Like, yes. Fukata? Yeah. yeah and then they'd have offshoots of that that they would have yeah. and, and, and of course um, those can certainly be functional. And again, what is, so then the next question I ask people is what is the linchpin that connects everything we just listed, including those karate arts that we mm -hmm. just listed together? What do they all have in common? I could name other elements, but competition is amongst them. That's it. Right. They all compete. Mm -hmm. And so anytime there's a, a form of competition and you want to win or your coach wants to win, mm -hmm. we use um, a live training methods. Right. And competition or competere, uh, to go back to the Latin root, to grow together, to grow with mm. your opponent, is the, is the epistemology of all things functional. If you want to make money, if you want to defend your country, you know, any time the results matter, we as human beings want, our, want what we're believing and what we're practicing and what we're teaching to have been tested um, in the realm of competition. And it's the same is true of science. Mm. You know, you, you, if, if my daughter is receiving, if my daughter is very ill and she's receiving a certain type of medicine, I want to make sure that that medicine has gone through tests. Those tests have been repeated. The people that were, that were validating the results of those tests, tests were trying to disprove the test and had the education necessary to be able to do it. Mm. And what is the scientific process when you boil it down, if not a ruthless form of empirical competition? Mm -hmm. It's a meritocracy. Ideally, you know, mm. and if the results really do matter, if one of my daughters really was sick, mm. I'm not going to care what gender the doctor is. I'm not going to mm. care what skin color the doctor is. Mm. I'm not going to care if they came from a tradition that's supposedly 3,000 years old <laughs> or who their master was. Mm. I want to I know that that doctor is the best doctor that I could possibly mm. get mm. to cure her in mm. the scientific sense of that word. Mm. You know, and, um, and, and that is the thing that connects functional martial arts and fantasy-based martial arts. So when people think about fantasy-based martial arts, if it doesn't have a sporting context, mm -hmm. if you're not stepping on the mat when you practice and working against somebody that's actually resisting with aliveness, and again, we could sum all this up with the one word aliveness, mm. then it's not going to be functional. And where people get hung up then after that is, well, it's a sport. Sports have rules. There's no rules in the street, you know. Um, but 
if you, if you take another step back and think about that, what you're saying, what they're saying essentially is, okay, when results really matter in terms of wanting to be able to score a takedown or wanting to be able to hit yourself in the, hit someone in the face, then we go to competition. But when your life's on the line and you're trying to hang on to your handgun, now we have to go back to the dead patterns that we know don't work. You don't use an inferior training method for a more serious circumstance. So aliveness becomes even more important when we're training police officers or we're training the military or you're training hand-to-hand -hand combat. It doesn't change. And so the way I would always explain it is circumstances will dictate the tactics you need to use. Mm. And you can bet that plans will change upon contact mm. in a real-life situation. Mm. But the root skills you develop in the core of the delivery system of stand-up, clinch, and ground mm. do not change. Mm. So your ability to escape a headlock here in the gym when you're competing in the Gorilla Cup like you were a month or so ago, mm -hmm. and your ability to escape that same headlock in an MMA cage. Mm -hmm. And if you go get in a fight while you're walking to your car and somebody tackles you and puts you in a headlock, your ability to escape out there, universal. Yeah. You're gonna need the same body mechanics to be able to control them. The difference mm -hmm. is in one scenario, they'll be punching you in the face mm -hmm. uh, in a cage. In another scenario, they might be punching you in the face out on the, uh, parking lot and they might have friends or they might have a weapon who knows mm -hmm. but your ability to control your own body mm -hmm. and to control their body and the root movements of what we do and the timing that you've ingrained to allow yourself to do that under pressure are identical and mm -hmm. that's why I always go back to the term delivery system mm -hmm. it's not about Japanese jiu-jitsu mm -hmm. or Brazilian jiu-jitsu it's about the delivery system of um, how best to do something efficiently on the ground. Mm -hmm. And because the, the sporting context of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, because the Brazilians were so open about allowing strikes and not having time limits, and unlike Japanese Judo where you go to the ground and they'd only have a few seconds and a lot mm -hmm. of things were not allowed, mm -hmm. they evolved the delivery system in a scientific sense through competition mm -hmm. so that they happen to be right now the best on the ground there. But when they're applying a proper choke, it's not a Brazilian choke mm -hmm. any more than there's mm -hmm. such a thing as Brazilian geometry, mm -hmm. right? And none of us would take anybody seriously that talked about Canadian geometry. Mm -hmm. And so it should be with martial arts if you, if you view martial arts as a science. Mm -hmm. I mean, we still say Brazilian jiu-jitsu for two reasons. One, it's important we differentiate ourselves from Japanese jiu-jitsu because it's not the same. It's yeah. not the same epistemology. It's yes. not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And two, I want to give credit to my teachers. Right. Um, that came before me and my teachers were Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu instructors, you mm -hmm. know, Chris Howder and, and Hickson and those people. Mm -hmm. um, but the truth of the matter is when somebody has a really good hip throw um, or a really good choke or the ability to hold you down, it doesn't matter whether they're talking about catch as catch can or uh, folk style or freestyle or Japanese Jiu-Jitsu Brazilian, it's grappling. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the delivery system. And that brings us back full circle again, not to be long-winded, but mm -hmm. I'm giving you the synopsis of all this. but. Mm -hmm. Um, in the end, it comes back to training method, right? So it's not about a particular technique. It's about how did you train that technique? And that technique needs to be trained with aliveness. Mm. And so then you proceed forward and we have all the excuses and, and rationale for not training with aliveness, which I've all heard, I've heard them all before. And I, I can, they're the same ones over and over again. Mm -hmm. And whether you're talking about an Aikido person or a Wing Chun person. Um, but that in a nutshell is what it's about. Mm. You mentioned... You mentioned the brief answer, the long, long one, and and also those uh, the free arguments. Mm -hmm. So, could you elaborate on, on that? Sure. Um, competition is the is the core of the epistemology, mm -hmm. um, and and what I refer to in martial arts is aliveness. 
that's important because what we're doing when we're talking about physical fighting on the ground or fighting military tactics or fighting with a weapon, it doesn't change. The stakes change dramatically, but the training method becomes even more important. That's a question of epistemology. And that becomes vital because what we're talking about is an objective question. And people sometimes get confused on that. So people will use those terms depending on whether or not you're talking about classical philosophy or science and in what somebody's background in different ways. So just to give you a real brief definition of terms so that people understand more what I mean when I say that. There's subjective questions and there's objective questions, essentially, if we were to break everything down as simple as possible mm -hmm. and yet not try to be overly reductive. A subjective question would be, um, Rokas, I think there should be chairs here. And you say, no, Matt, I don't think there should be chairs here. Mm -hmm. And you'll have your reasons and I'll have mine. Mm -hmm. And maybe you don't like chairs or maybe I come from a culture where we use chairs, you come from a culture where you don't. doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, we can bring forth our argument and we're still going to want to use reason, which is the thing that we all have to rely on as hairless primates to determine rational answers, but we could both have a point. Mm. If I say, Rokas, there's no chairs on the mat right now, and mm. you say, no, Matt, there is, one of us is wrong. Mm -hmm. And what people need to understand about functional martial arts or, or fighting in general, fighting admits itself to... Um, objective questions in the same way that medicine admits itself to objective questions and science admits itself mm -hmm. to objective questions. There are better ways to do things yeah. and some things are wrong and some things are correct. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a field of knowledge like that, then what we have to do is we have to go back to a scientific process, which ultimately means a process of competition, a process of pressure testing what we're doing and making sure that what we're doing, uh, the results that we're getting are repeatable. It's not just something you can do or something I can do, but, you know, hundreds of people, women, kids, older people all over the world can pull it off. And then we know we're on the right track. Mm. And that's the epistemology of functional martial arts, which is aliveness. Mm. And ultimately, to make sure something's alive, you know, you have timing, energy, and motion. If you miss one of those elements, then you can create something that looks alive, but isn't. Aikido is a very good example. Um, for the untrained eye, even functional martial artists. You can have professional boxers, right, mm -hmm. who can watch an Aikido demonstration or watch Steven Seagal do something and go, wow, I think that, might, that might work, right? Because they, don't, they haven't thought about it. Mm -hmm. In the same way that you could have, you know who Yuri Geller is? Mm -hmm. Yuri Geller was a, a famous uh, magician, but he, he said he was a psychic that was popular in the uh, 70s when I was a kid. He was an yeah. Israeli. Mm -hmm. um, he was mm -hmm. so popular that you had people like... Uh, President Kennedy's or uh, Carter's wife, Rosalind Carter, who was a fan of him and other people, like he mm -hmm. was fooling people. And he was taken to the Stanford Research Institute, not to be confused with the University of Stanford because it's not related, but that's the name. And there's famous PhDs there and stuff and had them believing that he had psychic powers. <laughs> and then you had James Randi in, come in, who's a magician, who did what everybody else knew and just said, repeated the exact same thing that he was doing and just said, this is how it's done. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, and, and Johnny Carson um, famously humiliated Yuri Geller in TV, and Johnny Carson also happened to be a magician. Mm -hmm. But my point behind there was magicians are skilled in the art of tricking people. So they had a better uh, handle on how to, how to suss out a fake psychic um, than a PhD in physics did. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you can be a really functional martial artist, a professional boxer, and get fooled. And so one thing I always tell people is to look at the feeder and not the demonstrator. Like, what are they actually doing, right? Is this person that's also 
you know, falling with this beautiful throw, are they actually trying to grab that other person? Like if I just were to randomly go to a high school wrestling team, grab a kid and say, grab that guy in a kimono, would he ever be able to do anything that looked like that? Or would it just look like a guy that just got slammed on the mat over and over again? And we both know the answer to that question. But it's never tested that way. And when you start to talk to them, they'll say, uh, well, eventually we do that. Or it's always put off for some reason. And then they start giving you excuses. And the first one, where it begins is, it works. And this is where I have a real big problem with it. Because if you're telling somebody something works that doesn't work, and it's medical, or it's about fighting, you could really get somebody hurt. Um, there's a lot, a lot of other reasons why it's bad to lie to people about things like that or to be delusional about that. But the, mm. at the base level, you can get people killed, especially when you're talking about things like knives. And, um, and so they'll begin with it works. And with functional martial arts and the beauty of martial arts in general is it's easy to prove that that's not true. Mm. It's not so easy to prove that, well, it is, you know, with certain fields, but others, it can be more difficult. This is not that hard. Mm. And it doesn't have to be about one person beating up another, because you can have some really phenomenal athlete who's just a gifted, you know, fighter mm. and somebody who was not, and on a one-off, they could beat that person up. Mm. But you can construct repeatable experiments where nobody has to get hurt. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not talking about having to, to seriously injure someone, but you can let the Aikido person, as you know, or I don't mean to pick on Aikido, but you're from Aikido. Oh yeah, so, that's, no, yeah. that's the If you're a Wing Chun guy, I keep saying Wing Chun. <laughs> you can let the person from that martial art mm -hmm. do whatever they want, um, and just repeat it over and over again. And so then you can move past it works. And once you move past it works, then the next thing that comes up is, well, maybe it doesn't work, but it's useful. Mm. And then I'll start talking about spiritual elements or other things like that. Right. But it's interesting because I, I wrote a story that's in my book that happened to me so almost 20 years ago now or so, but I was a purple belt. Mm. And I don't know if, if you ever heard this one, but I was oh, a purple yeah. belt and I had a friend who, a friend of a friend who was an Aikido black belt. Mm and wanted to make Aikido functional. Came to my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class a few times, and again, I was only a purple belt at the time, and experienced what happens when you come to a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class and you don't know Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, over and over and over again. So he wanted then to test out his Aikido instead of just starting on the mat and touching hands for me to like, you know, engage in a more formal setting. I said, okay, so I went and I did the same thing to him. I was. 10 or 15, he's a big guy. He was probably 200 pounds and I was probably 230 at the time, but I was still heavier. Yeah. Um, but the fortunate part was after I, you know, gently took him down and submitted him 25 times, I had one of my students who was a, a brand new blue belt who was very, uh, Greg Piper was his name. Um, mm. And he was uh, very skinny. I think Greg probably weighed 125 pounds. He's since passed away, but he went on to have a professional boxing career. Mm. But anyway. He was probably 125 pounds soaking wet, and, and this guy was 200. And Greg did the same thing to him. He moved very quickly after that when we went out to lunch from, well, it works, to, well, you know, it's useful. Uh -huh. And the question I asked him was, okay, um, what benefits are you getting from Aikido that you cannot gain from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu mm -hmm. in maybe an even more powerful way because right. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has the benefit, the added benefit, uh, a really important benefit of being true. And that's when he switched to the third and only other form of pseudo-argument that you go from. So it's like a shell game uh -huh. from it's useful to attack the messenger. Uh 
That's when you're going to hear stuff like, well, you guys don't have key or, you know, you've taken all the, all the spirituality out of the martial arts and, you know, you get into that and it's very predictable. And I'm not one to brush that. Two things. First, that's not an argument. It's ad hominem. But set that aside. I'm not one to brush that aside quickly because I do take that seriously. Um, If training the way we do here over time led people to be assholes, I wouldn't do it. Um, I don't want to have a gym where people come in and they don't feel welcome or I'm producing people who are becoming worse uh, aspects of themselves. I want people to, I want people to learn how to be better people every day, myself included. And so it's an argument I take seriously, but you've been to my gym and you've seen the people here. It's, it's just simply not true. Mm -hmm. And I've been to many traditional martial arts schools and probably not in the last 10 years, but probably didn't change (laughs) in years past. I have, um, I've even done seminars there Mm. and I've never run into people with more of an attitude. And I understood then, and I understand now where the attitude comes from. The attitude comes because they're trying to defend a position that they can't defend. And they've been granted this authority and rank that's based on something Mm -hmm. fake. And when you start to reveal to them that it's all make-believe, there's one of two things that human beings gonna do. They're either just gonna drop it and go on to something healthy or they're gonna dig down and that's not good for people and it's not good for their personalities and tends to make people insecure and you know they puff out their chest and it's all kind of silly but it's predictable and in a jujitsu school that you know if it's a bad school of course you can you can see the same type of behavior but if you go into a good brazilian jiu-jitsu school generally speaking most of the instructors are fairly humble because a good brazilian jiu-jitsu school by definition (coughs) They're rolling with their students all the time. I mean, they're going to roll with you. They're going to train with you. And we're all rolling together, and sometimes we all get tapped. And there isn't that fake position that you have to defend. But that is the trajectory of the argument. It starts with, okay, it works. Uh, maybe it doesn't work, but it's useful. Okay, maybe there's no use that we can't get from functional martial arts, but you guys are assholes. That's how it goes. And there's only three forms of pseudo evidence that they ever bring up. The first one is anecdotal stories. Mm. Well, O Sensei back in yes. the day, you know, dodged a bullet <laughs> a and then he took these two guys and it's always that. <laughs> and then the second one is an argument from authority, which is almost like the first one. Well, such and such sensei said this, so this must be true. And well, what's such and mm. such sensei's aside from the fact that argument from authority is a fallacy, right. why is yeah. why is he an authority? And then you go back to the anecdotal story, <laughs> right? right. Yeah. Um, and that's really all there is. The third one that they'll bring up after that is some, they'll create some form of taboo. And this gets into the topic that we, you wanted to talk about today. There's a couple different kinds of taboos that people will bring up, but they will try and make the questioning of it taboo, whether they say you're being disrespectful to the instructor, um, or they'll say, well, this is something that can't be tested. And what they want to do is they want to take the superstition that they're um, promoting and they want to take it out of the realm of something that can be tested empirically. And so they try and create a taboo around testing it empirically. Mm-hmm. And that's all they've got. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never heard any other kind of evidence for it. Um, I'm, I've, I see the same progression every single time. Mm-hmm. And my big problem with the argument, it's the, it works as an easy argument to fix if somebody's willing to test it. Mm-hmm. My big problem with it doesn't work like that, but it's useful is because it usually is also coupled with deep dishonesty. 
right? Because they're not, they'll say that to me. Like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, I walk into the school, they're like, well, we don't really do Aikido for fighting, you know. But when I'm not there, are they, is that what they're saying to these students, right? Is that what yeah. they're saying? And, and the thing that it, remi it reminds me so, all of this reminds me so much of religion. But mm -hmm. that piece in particular reminds me of the dishonest preacher or the dishonest mullah, whatever it is, who will stand in front of the congregation and read from the book of Genesis as if it's a news report, knowing full well that the majority of the congregation, well-intentioned, sincere people, believe Adam and Eve were real people and that Noah's Ark really, the world flooded and it was really Noah and the two animals. They believe that. And they teach it as if it's true. And they'll talk to those people as if it's true. And then when they wind up having to talk to an evolutionary scientist or a geologist or something like that, they're like, oh, well, you know, it's all a metaphor. Right. And it's so condescending. It's so deeply condescending. And, I, and I, there's no way that I can view that as being healthy for them because they spend a good percentage of their life being inauthentic and lying to people. And there's no way I can view that as being healthy for their, their congregation either. And so I would rather say, I don't think, I'll, just talking about religion for a second, I grew up with uh, fundamentalist Christians. I don't think people who don't understand, and they never do, but don't understand evolution and don't believe in evolution and think Adam and Eve were real people are dumb. Mm. I don't think people that believe that the Bible or the Quran are the literal words of God are stupid. Um, I believe they, they're often very bright, um, sincere, kind, good people, often. And I would want to have a conversation with them that's not deceptive. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that at all. Here's why I believe what I believe. You tell me why you believe what you believe, and we'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. But what I'm not going to do is pretend while I'm around them that I believe that's true. And then when you and I are hanging out, it's like, oh, yeah, it's just a metaphor, Rokas. Yeah. And that's, what, that's also why I think it's... The, um, it doesn't work, but it's useful. So destructive for people. It's not good for human beings to uh, be duplicitous like that. For a little bit, just bringing back the uh, attention to specifically Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, because that, that's the arg argument which frustrates me, is that that's the excuse which is made. It's like, oh yeah, it's like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is great in the competition, but then it's not going to work in the streets because that and that is missing. At the same time, in my experience, there's, there's a lot of evidence that it actually works. It's like uncomparable, I think, to most practices. Even like if you watch YouTube, there's barely any videos which resembles at least a little bit where Aikido works. Probably no videos of Ding Chen which works. But Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there's a lot. Like sure. free police officers or yeah. just practitioners. Right. So... Um, yeah, it's just, it just, I don't know, it just blows my mind that people are... But I think, again, going back, people who haven't trained jujitsu and haven't experienced the humbling that comes when you step on the mat and are unwilling to put the... If they're unwilling to put themselves in that situation to begin with, you might not be able to reach that person. Mm. But I'm not the type of person that says... And I remember I had this conversation with you, I think, even before mm -hmm. we met in person. Mm -hmm. I'm not the type of person that then thinks that what you're doing is not useful because mm. there's a whole bunch of people who will watch your argument with that person mm. 
Mm. You know, how often do you see someone who's in a debate and on the wrong side of that debate and in the mid-debate or at the end go, no, you know what, you were right. They're going to hold that position, right? If they do change their mind, and many times they do, it'll be <laughs> six months or a year afterwards. Right. And I have in my, because I've had so many people tell me that. So why do you go around telling people this and that? It doesn't matter. They're not going to change their mind. 100% bullshit. I have in my email, I've had the same email for 25 years, a folder that's filled with thousands of emails. And I'm sure you're starting to get the same mm -hmm. thing from people who are very sincerely grateful for mm. whatever arguments I've made and help them change to something more functional, which has been good for their life. And oftentimes, a lot of these emails will say, um, and by the way, these out, outnumber my hate mail by like 100 to 1, easily. Okay. You probably have a slightly different um, percentage if only because you, you're, you're thinking about comments and things like that. But I'm right. talking about people, I don't read the YouTube comments. I'm talking right. about people who actually take the time to write you, right? right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they often would begin probably half the time with, when I first heard it, you made me really mad, or I thought you were right. a real asshole. And then, <laughs> and then after a while, they're like, but then I realized you were right and I was grateful. Mm. And there is, um, not for everybody, but for many people, I think there's, it's important and there's a, a large place, space to be had in public dialogue for blunt conversation. For someone who's not just going to come in and cherry pick or try and, you don't have, I'm not ever trying to hurt someone's feelings, but I'm not going to draw a fringe around what I'm trying to say. It's just, it's just some things, these are empirical questions. Is there chairs in the room or not? No, there's no chairs in the room or there is, right? Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot of people who appreciate that. I appreciate that. I appreciate it when I read it in an author. I appreciate it when somebody corrects me on something, not because they're trying to hurt my feelings or one up me, but because I'm wrong. And then they just say it straight out. Just tell me I'm wrong. Tell me why. Give me the evidence. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. I want to get rid of however many wrong beliefs I have, and I'm sure I have many, as soon as I can. Right? Why would I want to hang on to a false belief longer than I, than I need to? So, but anyway, back to what I was saying is I think a good portion of that, for those people who haven't experienced jujitsu, is there's this idea that there's the kind of martial arts you do for sport, and there's kind of martial arts you do in a self-defense situation. Mm. But the reality is there are tactics that you will do in sport mm. and tactics, maybe even strategies mm. that you'd apply in a sport that you would not apply in a self-defense situation because the stakes change, the environment changes, the, the addition of weapons and, and human beings, other human beings. But none of that changes the what is and is not the superior epistemology for training. Mm. You still have to train with aliveness. Mm. And furthermore, the root skills that you're going to use, your ability to stop someone from taking you down, your ability to take someone down, your ability to defend yourself when you're on the ground, your ability to go from being on the ground back to your feet, your ability to strike someone in the head so that you can knock them unconscious or to be able to push someone away or to break a grip. Those things transcend environment. They're true in the cage. The vast majority of what we do in MMA, especially, isn't going to change in a street, you know, somebody that you know, the hardest person in the world, who do you think the hardest people in the world are to take to the ground? Of wrestlers? Wrestlers. There's no doubt. I mean, you can right. test it, right? If, if I want to go and, and make myself feel horrible, all I need to go do is go show up at a wrestling room and try and take them down. I'll just, I'll leave the room feeling like terrible because <laughs> that's what they do all day long. Um, 
if you are in the street and you're trying to get someone on the ground so you and your buddy can kick them in the head, that's the last guy you want to choose, right? And punching someone in the face, the mechanics of that don't change when you take the gloves off. You may decide to form your hand in a different way. That's an argument. I actually think you're usually better off making a fist anyway, but set that aside. The ability for you to deliver the most maximum amount of your body weight through the ground into your opponent's skull, that's pretty much been sussed out by boxers who get paid millions of dollars to do that. And if you come up with a better way to deliver that amount of force into somebody's head, they will jump on it and do it. And the last person you want to exchange blows with in a street fight is a boxer. So what you're left with is all the things that happen before a fight and the strategy aspects that occur. And, and the assumption is that because what we do is better physically, what we do pre-fight must be inferior, and that's a mistake. It's actually, um, it's not even logical. What we do is better physically, and what we talk about and do in terms of all of the things that happen before a fight is also better because we're applying the same scientific training method to the way we talk about and discuss that. So if you take a self-defense class, with someone like Paul Sharp. Not only is the functional aspect of what you're gonna do, the actual physical part gonna be superior, so is everything else that comes before it. He's had that experience, he's been attacked by gangs, he's fought multiple people, he's had to deal with people who have knives and guns in his job. And the training method that we use becomes even more important there. So that information is available and important, and we do teach it. But, going back to the first part, there is no special street mount escape. Somebody sitting on your chest, mm. punching you in the face, whether there's three of them standing around kicking you in the head, or one punching you, or one in the gym who's just trying to hold you down and choke you, the, the, the two or three ways you're gonna escape from mount, the core ways, do not change. And if you're on top of a black belt in the parking lot trying to hurt them, you're gonna be in for a much tougher fight than if you're on top of somebody that doesn't know jujitsu because the root movements don't change. And that's the real piece I think people need to get in their head. Mm. The other thing that people need to realize is just as important, if not more so, to self-defense, real self-defense, and your ability to survive a violent encounter is being in shape, being used to um, someone putting hands on you who's not cooperating with you. You know, my daughter, my kids train, obviously, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and functional martial arts. But if that, if they weren't, doing functional martial arts. And I wanted to teach my daughters how to defend themselves. And I had a choice between um, Wing Chun or Aikido or rugby. I would put them in rugby because I want them to have the feeling of someone grabbing them and holding them and trying to throw them down or tackle them. That's real. Um, and when you train in a combat sport, whether it's, whatever sport it is, whether it's boxing or judo or, or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you have that sense of what it's like that my wife and the women who train here at the gym know what it's like when a man is really trying to hold him down. Because guess what? They come to class and there's men really trying to hold him down. So the first time they experience that is not going to be out in a parking lot. And I feel for an Aikido black belt who's a woman who thinks she can actually defend herself and has been dealing with men who are taking a fall for her for 20 years. And one day she actually does meet some scum in the street who grabs her and just wants to put her down. And the first time she's ever experienced that is there. So there's something to be said just about the physicality of what we do. The fact that sports teach you that. They teach you to overcome that kind of adversity and, and ultimately deal with the, the subvocalization in your brain that might be telling you to give up or to comply or whatever. You learn to fight through all that with what we do. 
And so the, having said all that, the one benefit going back specifically to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has in spades over boxing or wrestling or the other, maybe not wrestling, but certainly boxing and Muay Thai and those arts, is we can do what we do over and over and over again without getting hurt. You're not going to get brain damage. You're not going to get your knees ripped out or in a good training environment where everybody's careful, right? Yeah. And, and, and the instructors know what they're doing in a professional environment. You should be able to train jujitsu from the time you're five until hopefully you're 95. I plan on rolling until I die. Mm. And so that is a huge benefit because we can continue to train the way we do. And, and as um, Jock Wilnick uh, has said himself, if you can run away, in most circumstances, of course, not if you're a police officer because they don't have that option, but, but if you're just the average person who's attacked and you can run away, you should run away. So if you can't run away, what's going on? They're holding you, they're grabbing you. You're grappling, mm -hmm. you're grappling. And now all you're grappling, whether it's judo or wrestling mm -hmm. or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, everything you've done in the gym up to that point is gonna be helpful. And, mm -hmm. and people who haven't experienced that, which is more and more common these days because um, as the generations progress, the kind of violence that our ancestors live with daily no longer becomes a reality. People who haven't experienced that may not realize just how easy it is to deal with someone in the street who doesn't have professional fight training when you spent the last five or six years dealing with people who know jujitsu and wrestling. And all of a sudden someone grabs you and they don't really know what they're doing, but you do. And you might be scared, you will be scared. If you're smart, you'll be scared. And your adrenaline will be pumping and you may not remember what you're doing and you may not use conscious thought really to think about what you're doing because, um, because of the, the heightened awareness that goes on when, when you're attacked as an animal like that. But guess what? Your body will respond. And, um, and after people have that experience a couple times, and usually that only happens for you know people who do it for a job, whether it's dealing with mental patients or having to control them or, you know, police officers and stuff. After a while, they just realize, wow. And then the question of, does Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu work in the street? is not even a question, right? right? I had a student who was um, an older man years ago who, who was a, one of my purple belts, who was a Portland police officer. And he was probably, he wasn't that tall and he was probably, uh, gosh, I don't know, maybe 180. His name was Chad. And there are some big guys on the, department, right? Mm. You guys are like my height, like six, three, six, four, 250 pounds who lift weights, who was strong. Chad wasn't like that. He was a father, family man, but he was a purple belt. And when those guys would have, it was funny because when those guys would have a real tough arrest, somebody that was really giving everybody a hard time, guess who they call? They call Chad. <laughs> it was like three or four guys trying to hold this guy down and cuff him. And then Chad would walk in and just put him in the car. Yeah. I don't want to make it sound too easy, but yeah, sure. But the question of whether or not Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu works or what we do works is testable. It's repeatable. It's been proven. It's an easy, it's an easy question to answer. Yeah. Very last question, if I may. Mm -hmm. um, for people who are, kind of as, as a self-reflection, because I think the, the big problem is oftentimes people who don't understand it are the ones who don't understand. They don't know that they don't know. Right. So if somebody is self-reflecting, hopefully having doubts, or even without doubts, just thinking about looking back at their martial art, or their practice, what would be the main pointer, pointers you would suggest for such a person to, to go through like a checklist of two, three things? Like, is this there, is this there, is this there? So I guess 
timing energy motion, but... It's timing energy motion. Test okay. it. In Filipino martial arts that I used to teach from, I haven't taught those for 20 years, but when I used to teach those in, in the Jeet Kune Do community, they have all kinds of patterns, and they're dead patterns. And you, you know, it's like the box pattern, sombrata. And you go like, you know, here, here, and, you, and it's, you learn it. And the, the, their rationale was, well, you learn it, and then you break the rules, and then, and then you can, you can kind of riff on the pattern and everything else. And, but the feet are kind of static, or you can make it more alive, or you can hit harder, but it's still a pattern. Yeah. Right, and so you're doing that pattern for years or whatever. Why not one day just put a helmet on, put right. some gloves on, right. grab your buddy, and go, you know, try and hit me in the head. Right. Not like where I know what you're going to do and you stop and lock your arm out right here right. so I can do my box pattern, but just try and hit me in the head and find out for yourself what happens. Yeah. And you will quickly see the distance changes, the timing changes, mm. the energy you need to use change because you've been. You've been spending all this time in a dead pattern. It will not translate directly. And that's something I, I, I read on the, or heard on the video you did with Kane, but he mm -hmm. said something that um, I think all of us in functional martial arts take for granted, but a lot of people that are still trapped in traditional martial arts don't realize. And that is when we do what we do full on, when we're really fighting or, or doing it 100% in a competition or whatever it is, it doesn't change. It doesn't look different. Right? It, it, the, the, you don't, you, we don't train one way and then say, okay, but when you really apply it, you have to go like this, you have to go here, and everything changes. Um, it looks much prettier when you're just demonstrating, right? But there's no, there's no difference. The, the timing, the energy, the space, the weight, that's the, such a huge thing because no time that we spend in jiu-jitsu is wasted. I'm not going to teach you one thing here in class and then when you go spar and say, yeah, but when you spar, Rokas, you have to do it like this. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah. And the only rationale that they'll ever come up with when, when that happens, and this, you'll hear this over and over again, is, well, but what we're doing is too deadly. <laughs> right? If you actually sparred it this way, people's yeah. arms would rip out. So they have to comply. And just for anybody that's watching or hears that, and you'll hear it a lot, that is always... 100% bullshit. It's 100% bullshit. You can safely find a way to test anything. Whether we're talking about training with knives or whatever it is, you can find a way to test it and not cripple yourself or someone else. There's nothing too deadly that can't be tested under live circumstances. If you don't know how, you can send me an email. I'll send you back <laughs> four or five sentence description of how you could try it. So... I just want people to know when they hear their sensei or sifu or guru or whatever say that, that person e is either ignorant yeah. or they're lying to you. Yeah. Great. That, I think that says everything. Awesome. Cheers. Cool. Thank you very much. You're welcome.